Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. We will be starting this week in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. And once you are there, uh, if you would stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call to the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we continue our exposition of Luke's gospel, uh, we now arrive at a second occurrence of a disciple being called to follow Jesus. You'll remember the first instance here is in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We see the call of Peter, James, and John, and also likely Andrew as well. And we see all of these men called, and they they leave behind their their boats and their old lives and their, their catch of fish, and they go and follow after Jesus because of the great miracles and works that he reveals himself to do and who he reveals himself to be to them. In this week, we see a second such call, a much shorter account of the initial call, but then we get some details after that call of discipleship, and we see what Levi is invited into, and more so what a disciple is invited into as well. And so I think what this passage really addresses for us, and I want to kind of frame this on the front end, is why the church exists, or why do disciples exist? We can ask it another way, what is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is one of those topics that's highly debated or highly contested in the culture. Does the church exist, for example, to uh, enact social change? Is the church a a vehicle for people to be fed and clothed and well taken care of? Is that the mission and the purpose and the ultimate goal of the church? Conversely, is the church uh, a gala uh, to display your own religiosity or your own righteousness? Is it a place where you go so that you can let other people know just how much better you are than they are? Uh, and really seal the deal by dressing up for it and uh, making yourself known to take this time on Sunday to spend alone with other people who are like you, uh, and then you can all compare one to another how well you are doing. Is that why the church exists? I think this passage speaks to why the church exists, and it really breaks out into two main reasons why the church exists. The first reason the church exists is to count the cost. You will see that in verse 27 28, and 29 of this text. The church exists first and foremost to count the cost. And the second reason the church exists is to understand the mission. And you'll see that in verse 30 through 32 of this text. And as we move along, I would like you to keep those two points in mind, counting the cost and understanding the mission, because if we understand those two pieces, we can understand what the mission of the church is, why it exists, and what we as people of the church are supposed to do in response to those realities. So I'd like you to turn with me in verse 27 or look down with me in verse 27 and read with me. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. 
Now, in this typical Lukean fashion, we've seen this a few times in Luke's gospel so far, Luke will very quickly onboard us into the events that are happening. He, he spares very little details. He, he says, you know, this is something that happens after this previous event. But if you really want to know where this event happened, Luke's not going to tell you the location. He's not going to give you pertinent details like who's all there. He just onboards you quickly into the story and then gets right into the meat and potatoes of what's going on. But if you want to know where this occurs, you can look at Mark's gospel. And Mark tells us that this happens right outside of the Sea of Galilee, where, Luke, where Jesus has previously been roaming around. And you see that this happens kind of in the context of the same place or location that he's been living and ministering. And this is in Capernaum, which is where Jesus has really had his home base for his whole ministry. So Jesus is there, and it says, and after this, referring to the events we studied last week, so after he's raised uh, or gotten a paralytic to stand up and walk around, after he's cured the leper, after all those events, this event takes place. And so this event is pocketed to help us further understand what Jesus is here for and what he is here to do. Remember, he's been revealing himself to be the son of man, the one who heals, the one who is uh, the ambassador of God on earth. And now he's going to reveal himself primarily in his public ministry to be one who carries the mission of God. And he's going to tell us what that is about. And you see, uh, he says, after this, he went out and he sees a tax collector named Levi. Now, you might be wondering, who is this Levi character uh, that's mentioned here? Levi is Matthew, the same Matthew who writes the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in our English New Testaments. Matthew is a disciple. He's, uh, in other accounts, referred to uh, in this same exact instance and story as Matthew rather than Levi. And that's not difficult for us to understand. It's not like Luke made a mistake and other gospel writers had to correct him. Levi and Matthew are the same person. It's very common for people in this time to have multiple names. You can think of John Mark, who is a disciple or a friend of Paul in the New Testament in his ministry in Acts, who writes the gospel of Mark, which we also have an account of. You can think of Simon Peter and his name as well. People have multiple names. It's a very common thing in this time. So Levi is the tax collector he sees, and I would like to point out that the, the significance of him being a tax collector is not something we should just read over or skip over. This provides us cultural background that allows us to understand the dynamics that are at play in this text. He's not a chief tax collector, okay? There's such a thing as a chief tax collector. We meet Zacchaeus, who you might know from other Bible stories in Luke 19, who's described as a chief tax collector. And what that means in the tax collecting enterprise in Rome that is, under, uh, that is over the Jewish people, there are such things as chief tax collectors, which are like the high up Jewish people who are right next to the Romans. And what they have is under tax collectors underneath them that work as kind of their uh, thugs on the street who enforce the collection of taxes. <laughs> Levi is not a chief tax collector, which means he's not far removed from the people. In fact, we we're told that he's just a normal tax collector and that is confirmed when it tells us that he's sitting at the tax booth which means he sits there with a toll on the road and whoever comes to and fro or whoever catches fish from the lake is responsible to go to Levi and Levi is going to exact the Roman tax from those people, which means that Levi is a tax collector who gets his hands dirty. He's responsible for not only collecting the tolls, but also enforcing the toll collection on people who don't want it, which means Levi would have likely employed thugs and criminals to do his bidding and to almost intimidate people to give the taxes. It also likely means that Levi is the person responsible for taxing Simon Peter and James and John, because remember, they fish on that lake, and as soon as they catch their fish, they would have to walk right past this booth on their way to uh, the rest of the cities, into Capernaum. And so he, Levi is the tax collector who's most likely responsible for being almost the face, if you will, of Roman occupation in Jerusalem. 
And that's an important thing for us to get our heads around because Levi and tax collectors in general are considered sellouts. They're considered people who traded off their people to gain favor with the imperial, uh, the imperial Romans. And that is seen as betrayal and rightly so because they're part of the system that is now oppressing the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And so Levi being a tax collector is not something we can skip over because if you miss that part, you miss the importance of what is said right after this, which is when Jesus turns to him and he says, follow me. Now, follow me is something we typically hear from Jesus. If you grew up in the church or you grew up around Christians, you know this term. This is the the favorite phrase of Jesus. He invites Peter to follow him. He invites everyone to follow him, it seems like. But he invites, in this case, a tax collector to follow him. He invites not just any tax collector, the tax collector who's responsible for being the face of Roman occupation on these other disciples to follow him. And so far, the group as we know it is those three other people and now Levi which means Levi is going to be considered the odd one out in any situation. It also tells us a little bit about what the call to follow Jesus is like. He doesn't come and pick the best of the best, right? If you were ever uh, playing dodgeball in elementary school or picking a pickup basketball game and you have team captains and you have people who pick teams, what often happens is you pick the people based on skill set or likelihood of being good at those events. So usually the most athletic people go first, the tallest people go first. And then it goes dwindles down and then all right at the end, right before everyone else is done, uh, you really have the people who no one really wants on their team, but you kind of got to pick so that they end up on teams. Jesus does not pick his team based on ability to succeed. We talked about this last time. He doesn't pick the rabbis or the people who are best trained in the rabbinical schools. He picks fishermen who would have been likely illiterate other than his instruction. He picks Levi, who's a tax collector, who is the face of Roman occupation in Jerusalem. And he's going to have these people help him to get the gospel and get his message out to other Jewish people, which means he's picking a team that you wouldn't really pick if you were anybody else. He's picking a team not on the basis of their merit. He's picking a team on the basis of his divine insight. Paul actually tells us this uh, in 1 Corinthians. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world standards. Not many of you were smart. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chose what is weak to shame the strong. And that started with the disciples, and it continues even today. And that's an important thing to know, because we shouldn't think of ourselves as being part of God's team because we're a good pick. We should think of ourselves as being part of God's team because he simply said, follow me. That's why we're there. And the call to follow has so much implication in Scripture. And it's it's be hard to stress or spend too much time on what the call to follow all means. We can summarize it in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verse 23. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Meaning, you don't get to follow Jesus and keep all your comforts and uh, all the things that you like to have around. You don't get to follow Jesus and keep all those things. When you follow Jesus, you put everything on the altar. You put your life, you put your comfort, you put all the things you used to hold dear, you put it all on the altar, You take up your cross, which for them is an instrument of torture and execution, and you pick it up, which means you should be willing to die if you go after following Jesus. There's so much more to be said about that call to follow, and as we move through Luke's gospel, we're going to learn more about that call. But that's a good summary statement. That's right in the middle of Luke's gospel. He says, if you come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And Levi, in this case, is called to follow Jesus. He's called to give up what he knows and instead pursue after Christ. And you notice in verse 28, he leaves everything. He gets up 
and he follows him. Now, this is significant. And again, it's important that we know he's a tax collector because his call to leave and to follow and the fact that he goes and does it is more significant than Peter, James, and John when they leave their fishing business. If you're a tax collector, you've gotten that job because you've beat other people out for that post. And it's a competitive position because it's a lucrative career. And if you're okay with being a sellout, which many Jewish people are, you can get extremely rich off of collecting taxes. Which means when Levi gets up and leaves, he's not the head tax collector, he's one of the understudies, he'll be replaced almost instantly. And he won't have a job to go back to. Peter, James, and John, they can pick up their fishing business. And we see they do it from time to time when they get discouraged. They pick up their fishing business after Jesus is crucified. And that we find them back at their old work, almost falling back on their old habits. But Levi would not have that option. Him leaving behind this post is leaving behind a career and having no career to go back to. So it's significant when he does these things. The call to follow Jesus for Levi meant giving up a temporal career and gaining an eternal position with the Father. That's what it means. I wonder in your life what your call to follow Jesus looked like. Have you been answering that call to follow Jesus? What have you given up in response to the call to follow? Levi gives up career. He gives up relationships. He gives up all the connections and the, the financial stability that he has, and he leaves it behind, and he follows Jesus. What have you given up? Have you given up friendships for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of answering and responding to Jesus' call, have you given up friendships? I would be surprised if you wouldn't be able to think of at least one person you've had to break fellowship with as a result of responding to Jesus' call. What about relationships? Getting out of an old relationship and leaving yourself alone for a time because you know that that wasn't taking you to a place where you needed to go in order to be obedient to the call to follow Jesus. What about career? Have you given up career ambitions and career successes because you knew that that would lead to your own glory rather than being able to advance the kingdom of God? You see, Paul tells us that if Christ Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, we are all people most to be pitied because our lives should look so foolish in comparison with the world that we, that we should be able to look back and say, if Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, if he isn't the Savior, Lord, and King, that our career decisions look foolish, our financial decisions look foolish, our ability to give up old relationships looks foolish. Our ability to give up our comforts looks foolish. Paul spends most of his time after being converted, beaten up or in prison. Those are really his two states. Sometimes he's consoled and taken care of, but for the most part, he's beaten up or imprisoned. And in the odd, in the odd travel in between, he's being shipwrecked on different islands. He gives up all his comforts, not because he likes to. He gives up all his comforts because he knows that it's worth it. What about you and the things that you've given up? Would you reflect back on those things and say, yeah, I think that was worth it. I think that was worth giving up for the sake of Christ. Because what's interesting is if we don't give anything up, if there's no cost to following Christ, we don't think of Christ as all that valuable. In fact, we can measure how valuable we consider Christ by asking ourselves the question, what are you willing to give up to keep that relationship? Would you say that it was worth it, the things that you've given up? for the sake of following Christ. What about the things that you will be yet called to give up for following after Christ? What about the things that you haven't yet been called to give up, but might be down the line? You might be suspicious of what those are, or you might have no idea what that entails. Levi responds to the call to follow after Christ. He doesn't necessarily know what he's signing up for. 
And Christian history would tell us that of all the apostles, only one dies a natural death. Levi answers the call and continues the answer to the call, and he eventually pays and seals the mission of the gospel with his blood staked into the ground and beheaded for the testimony of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure that if we could ask him if it was worth it, he would say with the Apostle Paul, I have forsaken all things for the sake of being found in Christ. For the sake of knowing him and being counted in fellowship with him, I forsake it all. I count it all as rubbish and worthless and worth being thrown away for the sake of Christ. If you're willing to give up your life for Jesus, you're telling us something about the value that he is to you. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, because that is ultimately what I will call you to do. Whether that is in this lifetime or a slow and painful death to all the things that this world has to offer for the sake of staying on the narrow road, you have to give something up. And if we don't understand the cost and if we undersell the cost, we undersell the value and the worth of Jesus. Not counting the cost is not trying to get people into church and getting them to make quick professions of faith and getting them to say that they've been baptized and they follow Jesus, but having no change of heart. And what we realize is by not counting the cost, we have undercut the very value and preciousness of following Christ. And we can't do that. We have to let people know, as Jesus does, that you need to count the cost on the front end before you get into this thing. Levi in that moment, likely knew about Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been doing ministry in Capernaum for quite some time. So he likely knew all of the ins and outs of Jesus' ministry. And when Jesus offers him the opportunity to come, he goes instantly. He leaves behind everything, gets up, leaves his career, leaves his friends, leaves his relationships, leaves all of this world behind and follows after Christ. Ultimately, even after Christ ascends, he continues to follow him to death. And then he joins his master in heaven. The call to follow looks like this. It says that no servant is greater than his master. If they hated Jesus and they despised him and they killed him, they're going to hate you, they're going to despise you, and they're going to be sick and tired of you telling them all about the gospel and their problem and their need for forgiveness. That is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. What it looks like is we, we can't say that, you know, we do whatever we want with our bodies. Paul says that, don't you understand? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. We don't get to do what we want anymore with the bodies that we have because they are also part of being put on the altar to glorify God. Paul says in one of his other letters, present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because that living sacrifice, your physical body, is part of your spiritual worship. You can't join Christ with unbelievers. You can't join the members of God with the members of the devil. And so therefore... Commit your body to purity. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. That's the cost, and that's something you have to evaluate on the front end. Is the pleasure of this life worth more than the cost of following after Jesus? You have to ask yourself, and we shouldn't hide that end. And there are many churches that want to dismiss that cost of discipleship for everyone except for homosexual people. They want to dismiss that call of discipleship for everyone except for this group of people and we'll tolerate all kinds of sexual immorality as long as the world's okay with it and as long as we can get more people in our doors. But we have to, with unashamed conviction, say that we do not water down this cost. We do not water down the message of the gospel because that would cheapen the grace of God that was required to purchase us unto salvation. That means we don't get to do what we want with our money. 
Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which means all the bounty, all the splendor, all of the things that we get belongs to God, which means we don't get to spend our money however we want to. It means we will be accountable one day to God for every dime, nickel, and penny that we ever spent. And we will have to answer, did we spend this in order to advance the kingdom or in order to advance our comfort? Our comfort, which should have been put on the altar at the beginning, at the initial part of our call. Look at verse 29 and look at what Levi has to continue to offer up on the altar. And Levi makes for Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Levi, in responding to the call, throws a party for Jesus. And he doesn't just throw a party. He throws a party and invites all of his former associates to the party. Notice his former associates is not the Pharisees. It's not the scribes. That tells you where he stands as a tax collector. He is wealthy, and yet no one wants to join his party. So he invites other tax collectors, and he's going to invite, as the Pharisees will say, sinners which would include the thugs that he would have employed. It would include prostitutes. It would include anyone who could associate themselves with a tax collector and get a free meal out of it. And Levi throws this party, not to throw a party. He throws the party because he wants everyone else to fellowship at the table and have a chance to meet Jesus. The reason Levi throws the party is to get people in contact with Christ. And when he does this, he's telling us that he he actually doesn't even hold his own home to his own ability anymore. He opens up his home to the mission of the gospel, the mission of the kingdom. He opens up his dining table to whoever will come and sit and hear about Jesus. And this is a strong rebuke to churches in the West because we will not be caught dead with some people in our homes and feeding them. And we should be. We should be willing to open up our table and have fellowship with people whose society would say, don't interact with them. Don't have meals with them. They're just trying to get a free meal out of you. Don't associate with that person. And we would say, and we should say, no. Because my dining table is not my own. My house is not my own. The comforts and securities that I have are not my own because I was bought with a price. And everything that I own was bought with that same price. And I am a steward of the things God has given me for the advancement of his kingdom. Which means we open up our house and our dinner table and our friendship and our opportunities to minister to people, we open that up to every single person who God would call us to be in contact with. Not just, as the world does, people who can help advance our social standing. We don't just interact with people who can give us the next promotion. We don't interact with people because they have things that we want and we want to get things out of them. We interact with people not because they can offer us things, but because we have something to offer them. That's why we interact. That is the whole call. We, we put our relationships on the line. Meaning every friendship is responsible for helping you to either advance the kingdom or you yourself to be trained up so you can be advanced in the kingdom. That's the purpose of relationship. It's called discipleship. As Christians, we are not called to mere friendships. We are called to fellowship, which means mutual encouragement in the body. And we are called to discipleship relationships, which means advancing the body forward through our encouragement and through us being encouraged. And so we do these things with intent to move forward. And Levi does this. He models this for us because he opens up his house he opens us the place at the table so that all of his former associates, all his former relationships can come in contact with Jesus. And Jesus is sitting at this table reclining with them. And we have to ask ourselves, do we model this as we move forward? So by counting the cost, we answer at least one part of the question. The question, remember, was what is the purpose of church? Who is the church for? 
And part of it is the church is for anyone who's willing to count the cost. And I say that carefully because if you're not willing to count the cost, you don't just get a free pass into the church because society likes your particular sin. If you're not willing to count the cost, you don't get part with Jesus. You have to count the cost. You have to evaluate, is it worth it? You have to evaluate that on the front end. And the church is open doors to anyone who's willing to count this cost. Anyone who's willing to put all that they have on the altar for the sake of Christ is willing to be part of the church. That's who it's for. It's not for people who are saying that we are better than anyone else. It's not for the purpose of advancing uh, social change in the world. It's for anyone who's willing to count the cost. That's on the front end who can be a member of this community. And the second piece of understanding or being able to answer that question is being able to understand the mission of the church. And the mission of the church for us is made clear, as many things are made clear, by a confusion of what that mission was for a time. And you'll see that confusion in verse 30, if you read with me. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you notice the Pharisees and the scribes are called grumblers. And that word elsewhere in scripture refers to one other main group of people. They're described as grumblers, which is the Israelites. Remember the Israelites who are led out of captivity, led out of slavery in Egypt. They're given this opportunity to be part of this new covenant, this new body that's part of the Lord's creation. They're set aside for him. They're delivered from their sin. And at the first sight of them not having water in a wilderness, they grumbled against Moses and against God. And at the first sight of them not being able to have the kind of food that they want, they want meat, they don't like this manna stuff anymore, they grumble against God and God says he heard their grumbling and he answered them. He says, I'm going to give you quail out your ears. You'll be so sick of quail by the time that I'm done blessing you with it. And he answers their grumbling in that way. The other time they're described as grumbling, and I'm just doing a survey of this, you can, it is so often that they are referred to as grumblers. The other time they're referred to as grumblers is when they're going to enter the promised land. Remember, they send spies into the promised land. They scout out if this is fertile territory. They say, absolutely, this would be the greatest land in the world. Here's the problem, though. There's a lot of really tall and warrior-like people there, and we don't know if we can beat them. And it says they, they grumbled against Moses because you brought us all the way from Egypt, now here, and we have no home. We have no land. We have no inheritance. We have no promise. And they grumbled against God. And that word, grumbling, is not in a positive light. And here, notice who's associated with grumbling. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. Part of that Israelite community now once again grumbling against God and his followers because of what he has decided to do. Because they don't get the full picture, they don't see it, and so they grumble. Later in Luke's Gospel, he'll tell us that when Jesus associates with Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes standing far off, they, they grumbled against him and they say, What's the deal with this person who associates with tax collectors and with sinners? They're described all throughout the New Testament in that same light. They grumble, and this is their accusation or their critique of Jesus' ministry. They say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you have fellowship or community with these wicked and sinful people? And it's a fair critique. Because remember, Jesus is supposed to be a rabbi. He's supposed to be part of the Jewish people. He's supposed to know their law. And in their law, it says, don't associate with unclean things. 
It goes so far as to say you can't even eat certain foods because that's part of the unclean thing. And so you need to separate yourself from it. And in the time since the prophets have passed away and the, these other rabbinical leaders have come to power, one of the theologies that comes into place is a theology of salvation by segregation. It's a, salva- it's a theology where you can be saved if you keep the law and you separate from those who don't keep the law, which is why the Pharisees behave the way they do. They're convinced that if they keep the law, they can become saved. They can be saved by keeping of the law perfectly. And their critique of Jesus is that he's, he might not be saved. He might not be on that track because he's now associating with unclean people. He's going to violate the law and therefore violate his opportunity at salvation. And they're concerned to let everyone know we're not endorsing this. We're going to keep ourselves far away because that, again, helps them with being part of this saved group because they're being set apart from everyone else, which is different than Jesus and all the New Testament writers' understanding of salvation because the New Testament says salvation is not by keeping the law. It's not by righteousness under the law. Rather, salvation is by free grace from Jesus Christ because as the law would completely and freely testify, no person can keep the law. Not even the, Jew, the person who's the most Jewish of the Jewish people, Paul, says he can keep the law. He says he thought he was righteous under the law, but indeed he stood condemned. And when he stands condemned under the law, we all stand condemned under the law because we have not even come close to how Paul kept the law. And we all stand condemned under this set of rules. The law is not just, by the way, the Jewish ceremonial law. It's also the moral law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the, it's the place where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Which means if you've ever desired something more than Christ, you've violated that commandment. It says you shall uh, honor your father and mother. It says you shall respect your neighbor. And you, shan't, you shouldn't even covet the things that they have. Which means if you have social media or Instagram or you've ever gone into a store and looked and seen something that you wanted that wasn't yours and you couldn't afford it, you violated that part of the law because it expresses discontentment towards God. And we can just go down the list and you can see how short you fall of the law. Everyone stands condemned under the law. That's actually the purpose of the law. The law, Paul says, is a tutor. It's an instructor which leads us to being ready to receive Christ. The Pharisees don't get that. They think the law is a map to salvation. They think the more they keep it, the closer they get to salvation. But that very belief shows how short they fall. In fact, when when dealing with this rebuke in Matthew's gospel, there's included a reference to Hosea 6.6, which says, learn this thing. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus is elevating and he's saying, I don't want you to keep the law perfectly. I want you to be repentant of the fact that you are actually short of the law. Learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Don't keep the law because you can't. Know what the law was there for. It was intended to be a mirror to show you how short you fall and to go to the cross and on your knees before Christ. That's what the law is for. Any misunderstanding of that is a misunderstanding of what it was there for. Galatians testifies to this. Actually, all of Paul's New Testament letters testify to that reality because no one is righteous under the law. And Jesus is going to agree with the Pharisees in his rebuke of them. It says, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And that first phrase there, those who are well have no need of a physician, Jesus is going to say, all right, fine. I grant you that those who are well do not need a physician, but what about those who are sick? They need a physician, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes, they would stand 100% with Jesus and say, absolutely, the sick need a physician. And they would have no problem with Jesus saying the tax collectors belong in that sick group. And Jesus is saying, great. So I have license to be part and with these people because I am the physician. I'm the one who's going to heal them. I'm the one who's going to help get them clean. And so in, in levying this critique of them, 
Jesus and the Pharisees would agree on this. The tax collectors, they're sinners. They're part of this group that needs saving. And Jesus says, fine, we can all agree at least on that point. In essence, what he's saying is not that the Pharisees and the scribes are healthy or that they are not sick. What he's saying is that while he is going about his healing ministry, it's for the people who are coming in to be healed. That's what it's for. It would be like if a doctor opened up an office or opened up a clinic, set up his tent, opened up his doors for the day, and a bunch of people come in. He's healing people. He's taking care of them. He's fixing their ailments. And then he walks into a patient's room and the patient says, I'm just here to let you know I'm perfectly healthy. You know, I see what you're doing out there, but I'm perfectly healthy. I don't need this. He's like, get out of my office. I'm not here for you. I'm here for the people who are sick. I'm here for the people who need it. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus thinks that these people are fine, that they're healthy. It's the saying that they're not aware of how in need they are. The Pharisees' assessment of themselves does not square away with reality. They're like the person who has cancer undiagnosed, and because they don't feel sick, they think of themselves as not being sick, when they could be in the most desperate need for care of anyone in the room. And they don't feel sick, and Jesus is saying, if you, if you saw the law rightly, if you had an accurate test or an assessment of how you were doing, you would have the appropriate test to give you your diagnosis, and then you should present to me that diagnosis, and I can treat you. The purpose of the law is to test how short you fall and how sick you are. And the Pharisees don't do that. They're not using the law for that purpose. And so Jesus says, fine. Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. And we can all agree on that point. And then he says something even more astounding. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That second phrase is a repeat of the first phrase. He's not talking about physically sick and spiritually or and physically healthy he's talking about the people who are spiritually sick and spiritually healthy he's saying i've not come to call the quote-unquote righteous but i've rather come to call sinners to repentance jesus again is not endorsing the pharisees as though they are part of this righteous group because the rest of scripture would testify to the fact that that's not possible what he's saying almost sarcastically is if you think yourselves as righteous fine but i'm not here for you I'm here for the sinners. I'm here for the people that are aware of the fact that they fall short and that they need salvation. That's the people who Jesus is here for. Their assessment, once again, does not square with reality. Jesus will later in Luke's gospel say that these people are blind guides and they convert people to their belief system and then they indoctrinate them into following the law and it says they make them twice a child of hell as them who, who went before them because they indoctrinate these people into believing that they can be saved by their own works apart from the grace of God. It's not reality. He says that they're blind, that they're deceived. These, this assessment of righteousness completely contrasts with Paul's assessment of how humanity is doing. In fact, you don't even need to get to the New Testament to understand the assessment of how wicked people are. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says it this way. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's hundreds of years before Paul's around and writing. Paul doesn't come up with this stuff. This is true in the New Testament. There's not a righteous man on earth who exists who can keep the law perfectly. Every single person sins. The writer of Ecclesiastes, by the way, the preacher, is a phenomenal assessor of reality. He is brutally honest and almost depressingly so. And he says there's not a single person on earth who cannot sin. That's his assessment of the human condition. And later, Paul will come, thousands or hundreds of years later, Paul will come, and he will agree with him. In fact, if you'll turn there with me to Romans 3, 
I want to show you Paul's assessment of the human condition. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. And to just onboard you into Paul's argument, because remember, context is super important when we're interpreting Scripture. Romans chapter 3, Paul has made the argument thus far that all stand condemned under the law. And the question arises, okay, what, what benefit was it to be a Jewish person if all are actually condemned? If the law can't save Paul, what was the point of the Jewish people being given the law thousands of years ago? What was the point of that whole thing? And Paul answers the question by, by saying that Jewish people cannot be saved under the law. That's true. And then they say, okay, what benefit is it? And he says in verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Meaning, did we have a better shot at being saved because we were given the law? He says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, by the way, Greeks includes the rest of us who aren't Jewish, are under sin. As it is written, and he's going to then quote a series of not Pauline phrases, he's going to quote a series of Old Testament phrases to advance his theology. Remember, this is not new teaching, this is old. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one gets the purpose of the law. No one seeks after God. There's no such thing, by the way, as a seeker. No one seeks God. That's what Paul teaches. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. Just because it's a group of people doing something together doesn't make it right. All have turned aside, and together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's not one person on the face of the earth who does good. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave, and what that means is they use their tongues to deceive. When they open their mouth and they testify to their own righteousness, they condemn themselves further because they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That means they're like a poisonous snake when they talk. They not only condemn themselves by what they say, they condemn everyone who hears them and listens to them. They're bitten by this poison and they believe it and they go into death as a result. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, curses against God, bitterness against his law. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known, which means they don't follow it. It's not that they're not aware of it. It means they don't follow it. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. The assessment of the human condition by Paul, by the writer of Ecclesiastes, and if we had time, we could look at countless more instances of this. The assessment of humanity is that they're rebellious, they're not righteous, and in fact, the fact that they try to keep the law is an evidence of their rebellion, and the fact that they try to keep the law demonstrates their lack of fear of God, because God gave them the law not for them to play a game to try to beat it. God gave them the law to show them how in need they were of him. The law does not exist to replace God. The law exists to point forward to the one who would come to actually fulfill it. And everyone who rightly understands the law rightly understands this. David says in Psalm 51, I know that you don't desire sacrifice. You desire a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Those are the things that you want. He, he's an accurate understander of the law. He writes most of the Psalms and his understanding of his own condition of brokenness becomes manifestly clear as you read those texts. But I need to get back to the text tonight. It says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if all then stand condemned under the law, if all stand condemned, what then is the hope that Christ provides? Again, what is the mission of the church? 
Well, to understand the mission of the church, we have to understand the mission of the person who founded the church, which is Jesus Christ. And according to his own statement of mission, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but rather sinners to repentance. And this kicks up for us a whole theology of the mission of Jesus and subsequently the mission of the church. To give you a whole host of testimony, we can ask the question, who is the kingdom for? Who gets indoctrinated into this thing? And Jesus says, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, why would someone hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's because they know they don't have it. It's because they know they're missing it. So the people who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, theirs is not the kingdom of God because they've missed the boat. They think they have righteousness. They think they're fine. They think they're satiated, but they're not. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know what they need and Christ will provide. That's the the testimony of scripture there. Jesus will say later the same kind of thing. Come to me all who weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's how he offers out the rest to the people who are under the law. Because the law offers salvation with no breaks, with no rest. If you ever slip on the law, you stand condemned, so you can never take a day off. But Jesus says, come under my yoke, come under my burden, you will find rest for your souls. Because I have finished the work, I have completed that task, and you can find rest under me. You can find assurance of salvation, assurance of your place before God under me, because it's no longer about what you do, it's about what I've done, past tense. Luke 14, for example, will tell us it this way. It says, Jesus is is telling a story and he's talking about how he throws this banquet and he invites all of his rich friends to come. And they all say they're busy, they're getting married, they've they've got to take care of business. And he says, fine, I'm going to send my servants out. I'm going to send them to the highways and the byways. I'm going to send them out to the crippled and the tax collectors and the sinners. Go get the poor and the lame and go get those people. And the, the servants come and they say, we've invited all those and still yet there is more room at the table. He says, fine, go out to the highways and the byways. Go out to the places where nobody wants to go. Invite them to have a seat at my table. And this way he describes who the kingdom of God is for. It's for the people who initially reject the invitation because they say, no, we're good. We don't need that. And so he says, fine, I'm opening the door up to anyone who acknowledges that they would benefit from this. He describes his kingdom in that way. Luke 19 says it this way. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. He came to seek and save that which is lost, which means if you're part of the category of people who identifies yourself as lost, freely and unashamedly, Jesus Christ, good news, came for you. He came to seek and save from heaven, incarnate into a human body. And he comes to seek and save, growing up as an adult, keeping the law perfectly so that he can save the lost person, even one lost person. Because the, the parable of the sheep, the, per, the parable of the person who goes and seeks the lost sheep, the lost coin, that tells us about the heart of Jesus because he's fine with all of the 99. And he's going to go leave and he's going to go pursue after the one who he doesn't have. And it says there is more rejoicing in heaven for one sinner under salvation. There's more joy in heaven for one person coming to faith. Jesus Christ comes to seek and save that lost person. In the Old Testament, remember, this is not new theology, this is old theology. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 45 says it this way, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is not a Jewish thing. This is not a Gentile thing. This is a world thing. This is a God thing. 
Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah writes that, remember, before Jesus comes and says things like, there's no one who's righteous. Before Paul says there's no one who's righteous. Isaiah says that with an accurate assessment of the human condition, saying all people need to turn and be saved by God. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's Jesus identifying his mission. So then what in response is the mission of the church? Well, Paul would write, for example, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we implore you to be reconciled with God. We're going to beg and plead with you to be reconciled with God because we know that you need to be reconciled. We know that the relationship has been broken and you need to be saved before God. He'll say it another way in 1 Timothy 1.15, I think I referenced this last week or a few weeks ago. This says, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full assurance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the chief. I'm the head of the sinners. Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners, which means when he's dismissing the Pharisees and saying, fine, leave me alone, He's identifying that his mission is not to squabble with them about theology. His mission is to go after the lost. That's his mission on earth. And subsequently, that's the mission of the church, to go ahead and offer this salvation through Christ unto salvation, under reconciliation with God. In Revelation 22, 17, it paints a much more beautiful picture of this thing. It says the spirit and the bride, which means God, the Holy Spirit, as well as the church, his bride, testify and say, all of those who thirst, come and drink of the refreshing fountain and living water that you get through Christ. Come all who are thirsty. That's the spirit and the bride, which is the church, testifying together to everyone else who's thirsty, who identifies themselves as such, to come and drink. And that's the ultimate picture of what the mission is. So the mission is twofold. One, it's Jesus coming to make right the divorce between God and man. He's coming to right the broken relationship. And we can't take part in that end of the mission. We can't take part in that arm of it. He has done it once and for all time, and he does it finally. But he has a second part to his mission, which he says, go out to everybody and tell them and offer this to them. And the church can partake in that end of the mission, which means we need to understand who Jesus came for. It says he came for sinners. He came for the lost, which means the church exists to go get the sinners and the lost. And how does the church do that? not by lowering its standards, not by lowering the cost of discipleship. The church does that by putting the bar as high as it is and putting yet the grace of God even higher. You can't lower the cost of discipleship and that's why that's so important. You can't lower the cost. God would say it this way. He says that he is not a God created by human hands. And what that means for us is that he's not a God who exists to fulfill human ends, which means he doesn't exist to meet your and I's desires. He exists to save sinners. That's what he exists for. And with Levi, as he defends here, and we, we, saw, this, we saw this earlier with, uh, with Peter and James and John, he says kind of, kind of uh, smugly at the end of him calling them, he says, uh, I have now called you out of being fishermen and I've now called you to be fishers of men. Now we could say with Levi as well, he's, call, he's been called now from collecting taxes to collecting souls. That's his job now, his full-time job. He's gonna spend all of his resources to that end He's going to enforce it. He's going to go forth and seal it with his blood. And Levi goes forth as a, as a brother, an older brother, of which you and I follow in. We're called by God in the same way to count the cost, to lay down all of the things that we hold dear, and to pursue after his mission. His mission is not social change. His mission is not the gospel and whatever else you want to tack on, as good as that may be. His mission is that he has reconciled lost people to himself 
for His glory, not for our glory, for His glory. And He has done so so that you and I can go out into all the earth and proclaim that. Not getting tired of that message, not growing weary of proclaiming that and trying to add things to it as we go about. He says, we do that. That's our mission. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, this is the gospel which I have delivered to you, which I have received. The gospel is this, is that Jesus Christ came, was crucified, buried, rose again on the third day in order to reconcile those who are lost back to God. That's the gospel. He doesn't add anything to it. He, he's so simple, his presentation of the gospel. So we shouldn't complicate it either. That's the gospel. Simple, straightforward, and profound. And that is exactly what we call all people in the world into as a church. That's the mission of the church. That's what we invite people into. And that's, matter of fact, what we ourselves are invited into. And that's a great encouragement to us because I think many of us try to go back and pick up our old lives and try to go back to our work and try to earn back favor with God. And we have to recognize we can't do that. We need to rest in the finished work of Christ. It's possible to have assurance of salvation. It's possible not through our ability to manifest the reality of salvation, but for us to believe that when Jesus says it is finished, he meant that it was finished. That's what we rest and we rely on. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we as your bride are so, so thankful for your mission on earth. Lord, we can say that at least for us, your mission has been successful. We can recognize that you have gone forward and you've completely changed the world. Not because you intended to change the world, but because you intended to reconcile it back to the Father. Oh Lord, we glory in that. We would praise you for that. We would do so all the time. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is contained in your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to recognize our own inadequacies, our own failures. Search our hearts to let us see exactly where we might yet need to count the cost. Lord, give us no ability to go around that. I pray that your spirit would press and press and press so that we would know exactly what we're giving up for you. And Lord, would your grace go before us for the things we don't even know yet we have to give up? And would you go before us in your grace to give us the strength and the encouragement to do those things when the time comes? We don't know what all we'll have to give up for your sake, but we know that you're worth it. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to that end. I pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.